Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's show is going to be a really interesting mix of sound healing, which is pulled from Eastern and Western practices. The guest today is Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury, who's a neurologist, a neuroscientist, author, and a pioneer in the field of integrative or functional medicine. She leads an Ayurvedic center in India where they're using sound medicine to treat chronic disease and looking at ancient Siddha texts that have been hidden from public view for centuries. Now, as you guys know, I believe there is great wisdom from the original biohackers. They didn't have all the gadgets and stuff that we have. So what they would do is they would just take a percentage of the population and put them in monasteries or caves and say, watch and write down what you what you can find and read all the stuff the last hundred generations did. And eventually knowledge and wisdom would appear. And then in our hubris in the last you know, probably four or 500 years, we basically had a few organizations who shall remain nameless, but might carry crosses who went through the world and burned as much of that as they possibly could. They literally stole the best texts, locked them in this really tiny country that's inside of Italy and don't share it with anyone else, except in some parts of the world, like in India, like in very remote regions, some of this stuff has survived because it's an oral tradition and now it's coming out of the woodwork because it's time for that. And I think sound healing is one of those. So when I hear it, wait, these are based on not just we made it up, but based on, hey, what if these old people were crazy or not crazy? Let's validate that. And that's why we have this episode today. And that's why Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury is on the show today, because that's the work she's doing. Welcome, Kulreet. Thank you. That was one of the best <laughs> introductions and one of just the best um, setups for people really being able to understand why this is relevant today. So thank you so much for that creative introduction. Oh, uh, you're, you're so welcome. I, everything I'm saying here is, is real. And I'm just overwhelmed at the, the ancient knowledge that I would have completely uh, dismissed mm -hmm. when I was in my 20s because I'm an engineer and that can't be, therefore it isn't, which is just scientific hubris. It's, hey, wait, maybe there was a reason that these people said something worked. Maybe it didn't, but let's at least give it a greater percentage than randomness. And, and you've been on a few shows like oh, I don't know, Dr. Oz <laughs> and even the director of Wellspring Health at Scripps Memorial in La Jolla. So you have what I'm going to call, quote, a, a real doctor background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't just play one on television. I was a real doctor. And, you know, it's interesting because I would consider neurologists as kind of the engineers of the medical world. We're yeah. very black and white. We like things very neat. And so I'm in the same boat with you. There's a lot of this stuff that in my 20s, um, I would have had the exact same reaction to. The other reason I wanted to pick your brain today is that you've done 20 clinical uh, research studies, at least participated in them, around MS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And people who listen to the show and read my books, which is a lot of them, probably read Headstrong, which was on the monthly science bestseller list between Homo Deus and Sapiens, which was the coolest place I've ever had a book. And uh, really, a lot of the research around mitochondria in the brain came from studies in those three fields. And you also have looked at diabetes in your studies. So you've gone from that to sound. And I really want to know what that path was like and like how that <laughs> happened, because I wouldn't have predicted that. Uh, so that that is the best framing I can possibly think of for just jumping into some questions in particular, because you wrote your book on sound medicine, which just came out in March called this is very surprising. If you guys are listening to this, it's called sound medicine. Uh. <laughs> No, I, I would not have predicted my life. I've come to a place where I don't even predict like the next year. Because I think once you do get kind of, you know, into that space where you're just allowing for um, life to show you the next move, you, you, know, you no longer can predict it because it just becomes, um, you know, more and more expansive. And um, yes, my background was very much as a normal uh, neurologist. Um, I think the difference, though, between myself and many of my colleagues is I always asked why questions. And most people in medicine um, don't ask why questions, partly because you're trained out of it. And oftentimes we don't have answers for why questions. And so it just annoys the hell out of, you know, all of your professors and all of the physicians that are training you. And so you just stop at some point because it's annoying and we usually don't know anyways. Um 
but there was a critical point just in my own um, health where I developed migraine headaches. And as a neurologist, all of the medications I was using wasn't working. And so that actually brought me back to some of the ancient knowledge that I was introduced to growing up in the form of Ayurvedic medicine. And so as I started to dive into that, and this is, you know, before the microbiome revolution that we're now in, this was, you know, 15 plus years ago, one of the core beliefs in Ayurvedic medicine was that the gut and the brain are intimately connected. And that completely revolutionized my practice. And so the part of me that was, you know, just the, um, the nerdy scientist, the one who loved asking why questions, I started going down this rabbit hole and realizing that as much as I respected my education, as much as I respected the institutions I was trained at, and I was trained at some of the best, there was still a lot that was um, unknown. And so as I started going into Ayurvedic medicine and started seeing the, um, you know, the enormous benefit that it had on chronic neurological conditions that I couldn't even treat, I just started going deeper and deeper into these ancient traditions. And I'm a huge quantum physics buff. It's something that, you know, I was introduced to as a young child and just um, loved. And the more I went into quantum physics, the more these ancient traditions, they finally made sense. And so what we thought were metaphors, you know, just poetic writings in these um, ancient texts, all of a sudden you realize that they were actually treaties on quantum biology, which is a field that has yet to really take root. So that's kind of how my, you know, journey started was honestly as a patient and then as a patient having to look at her own health different differently, um, you know, when I, I developed migraine headaches and then as a physician who had to be honest, you know, from a scientific standpoint and go, wait a minute, is there more to know? And now kind of, um, you know, as a, uh, as, as a newbie in the field of, of quantum biology, and that's really where sound medicine starts to make a lot of sense. To be really clear, quantum biology is a real thing. And so many marketing companies have said, oh, I have, you know, quantum coffee. Yes. <laughs> like, no, actually, you don't. You don't. Right. <laughs> so, when you talk about quantum biology, what does that mean? So when we look at some of the most brilliant quantum biologists of the last century, when this field was coming out, um, so many of them near the end of their life predicted that as this new understanding of existence on this quantum level, so on the smallest possible level, what we're finding is that there's laws of nature on the, on the smallest possible level that defy the laws of nature that we see on larger levels. So, so many of them said, you know, now that we're starting to understand this other reality that seems to defy laws like time and space and seems to bend, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the border between the observer and the observed, they predicted that there must come eventually a way of introducing the science into biology. And now we have this huge gap, you know, we have these decades of gap where none of that happened because biology and medicine are very, very slow to change in part because it's, you know, it's an entire business. And so when you change oh, yeah. it, you're not just changing new findings and going, Hey, look, we now know this to be true, but you're, you're changing an entire business that is around it. And, you know, I always say like science is the most widely practiced uh, religion uh, in the world, because what, once you have been taught something like you will defend it as a physician to your dying day, even if there's like emerging yeah. new science, like there's so many neurologists that absolutely do not want to talk about the microbiome, even though it clearly has relevance for the nervous system. And so what has happened now within the last, um, you know, few decades is, very, very bright, um, you know, physicians and um, scientists have come together and started to say, wait a minute, there is this field medicine, there is this way of um, understanding biology from a field effect, and it's actually called biofield science. And we can actually measure these outcomes. And it's it's difficult to describe because it requires an entire new paradigm shift because we're no longer talking about you know, taking a blood test or, you know, um, looking at bone density, but we're actually looking and measuring at effects created by the fields around the human body. And before people go, 
you know, is this just somebody feeling my aura? No, this happens like if you've ever had an EKG, that is a test that is actually measuring an electromagnetic field. If you've ever had an EEG, that is a test that's measuring an electromagnetic field. So we've been measuring these things, but all of a sudden we're starting to create, you know, new paradigms for saying, hold on, if we're measuring these things and human beings must also be fields of energy. And if they're fields of energy, then I wonder if modalities that use kind of more of the, those quantum mechanics, you know, um, I wonder if they're influencing those fields. And I wonder if those then translate into actual biological shifts. And this is what I see as eventually it's going to be the future of, of medicine is that we're using um, what we would call vibrational medicine, things like sound, light, and so forth, um, to create field effects in the body, which create immediate shifts. And and the funny thing is we actually are already using sound medicine. Um, we're, we're using it. People just aren't recognizing ultrasound as a form of sound medicine, uh, lithotripsy, which if anybody's had you know kidney stones and they have um, broken them using sound waves, that is a form of sound medicine. And there's even cosmetic procedures called Yule therapy that reverse aging. It's an FDA approved cosmetic um, procedure just using sound. That's because sound doesn't do anything. Oh, wait. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also sound on the reproductive organs in both men and women that magically grows new collagen and new blood vessels and right. new nerves. Um, yeah. I, I would say sound is doing something depending on the frequency and intensity and all. But they didn't have ultrasound 8,000 years ago when Siddha medicine was right. invented or emerged, whatever you want to call it. 8,000 years is a long time. In fact, you know, everything is very hazy beyond about 5,000 years of recorded history. So how do you know what happened 8,000 years ago? Tell me about the emergence of set of medicine and how you've taken it as a foundation for your form of sound therapy. So it is it is difficult to talk about the siddhas because they they do kind of predate a lot of our um, modern history, but they actually do have records. Um, yeah. Their records were kept on palm leaves and these palm leaves were copied. They were, they were kept in lineages um, within the siddha lineage and um, more recently kind of uh, they were inherited from one generation to the next, but they their records were kept in, it's a now extinct language. Um, it's a language from South India, which is where I am doing the research there. And they describe all of this. Um, so in addition to having an oral lineage, there are still Siddha practitioners that can recall their lineage back to 8,000 years ago. It has been passed on and they are still practicing today. And it's something that unfortunately we're starting to lose because the Indian government, you know, as it's trying to standardize everything, it's not recognizing that these lineages are actually priceless. They're a priceless connection to the past, but these records still exist. And what was shocking to me, and these records were the whole reason why I went to India, because I had heard about this early on in my training. And it's something like, you know, you hear about the Holy Grail or you you hear about a unicorn or, you know, and you just go like, nah, you know, that couldn't really be out there. Like that can't still be an intact lineage. And so when I heard that they were, in fact, you know, still, um, still intact and they were actually available for research. That's why I got on the plane, went to India. And what's shocking to me is as we're looking at some of these sections, they're talking about the atom. They're talking about the proton, the electron. I mean, they're talking about subatomic <laughs> particles and their approach to sound, you know, wasn't in the form of ultrasound. And oftentimes we assume that if there's an absence of certain technology, it's because a culture is behind. And it may just be that they had more advanced technologies that didn't even require that type of machinery. Is that what you believe, that we had real advanced technology back then, like Atlantis and all that kind of stuff? I think that when you start to look at these records and you start to see like, you know, their their diagrams of human anatomy, which are so meticulous, um, their description of how the body works, which is, you know, so similar to what we've described, but also way beyond because they're seeing the body working together as an entire system. And mm-hmm. when, you know, they're talking about subatomic particles and they're talking about laws in quantum physics that we have only recently discovered you have to raise the question of, are we really the most current version of humanity? Or, 
could there actually be these cyclic natures where we have our highs, we have our lows, and that we don't necessarily know exactly where we are on that scale? No. Um, are you are you familiar with Graham Hancock's work? No, I'm not. Please tell me. He was on this show a couple hundred episodes ago, I, I would guess. He's been on twice. But he wrote a book called Technologies of the Gods. And he went around the planet. It's about so in the 90s, actually. He went around and said, here's all the anomalies that don't make sense where we had to have advanced technologies right. in various places. And he said, I think it was wiped out 11,000 years ago because I've seen this myth in so many places. Yeah. And it was this big flood. And he said, I think a, a comet hit us. And everyone made fun of him and said he was full of, of crap. And uh, I read the book back in the 90s. It was like, some of these anomalies actually are really important scientifically, but we just wipe them out because if it doesn't fit, you ignore it, right. which is terrible. But then about 20 years later, he wrote another book. And he said, guys, now we have technology and there's a layer of iridium and a few other precious metals that only come from outer space exactly 11,000 years ago. And you can trace the thickness. So where I said it hit, it actually hit and came up with a bunch more evidence. And he said it wiped out a lot of our advanced technologies. And I'm like, okay, I think there's enough evidence to be open-minded about it. So when you look at these very ancient things, if you believe what he's saying, there was 3,000 years of history before this 8,000 years, and they probably inherited some of that because yes. we know from old stuff in Egypt and all, there's some ancient lineage stuff that is mystical, hard to explain, but the knowledge of what's in space knowledge of what's exactly. subatomic, it has been here before. And so you found a, a one of the strings of that tapestry and you're pulling on it. What are you finding? Well, so let's just go back to that word mystical for a second, because oftentimes we consider mystical whatever we don't understand. Yeah. And, you know, just keep in mind, like before we understood electricity, if somebody came to you and said, I can take a piece of the sun and bring it inside of your house and, you know, give it to you in a way where it won't burn you, that would seem absolutely ridiculous and mystical. And you'd go, okay, wizard, you know, yeah. uh, tell me about your magic sun. And so part of what makes something mystical is just when you, we don't have the science, we don't have the advancement to understand what it means. And so we think that things are outside of nature or things that are miraculous because we just don't understand the laws of nature yet that allow for them. Um, and yeah. so for me, I did not really know what I was going to find. I did know, there, you know, there were certain like myths around the Siddhas. Um, and one of the great myths that I was so drawn to was that uh, two things, actually. Um, they defied aging, meaning they had very specific um, processes where they were able to reverse aging. And these weren't something like, you know, you um, just, you know, hide in some kind of a cloak. I mean, it was like, these are the herbs you use and yeah. you have to do this for three weeks. And, and it was an entire three month process. But like you have to do these herbs for this um, amount of time and then you have to be out of the sun, you know, and you think about like photo aging. Are you God, like 100? No, I want to. Yeah. No, no, Dave, I'm 200. <laughs> but thank you. I love it when I'm called only 100. Um, <laughs> so this is one of the things that, you know, I, I'm I'm like still hopeful, like there'll be a moment where they go, gosh, we don't know if this really works. We need somebody to do it. I'd be like, yes, please. <laughs> you know? I have a couple of books on stuff like that. I'm I'm highly considering doing one of them because I'm a bit of an anti-aging guy. I, I want to I want to get your notes. Well, and this is like the ultimate anti-aging because they actually understood yeah. like the process of aging from the inside out. And what was what's really amazing about this um, process is there's a process of it, which I guess we would call, you know, spiritual, which is literally facing all of your demons. And that's why yep. people were selected who were, um, you know, able to do this because you literally would have to have a life review that you would start your, your mind, especially being in the dark for a prolonged period, would start to project all of the things that were undigested. And that's a key part of aging is actually digesting the psychology of trauma. And so they knew all of this, you know, and it was very, very, very laid out. It wasn't something that was like left to chance. It was like, you know, you have to do this for X amount of time. You cannot be exposed to the sun. You have to eat like this. There was a diet involved. How and long so, is this a 10 day, like Vipassana, like a Vajra armor? No, is this a three month it was, period? It was a three month period. It was a three month period. And they even described what would happen. Your hair would fall out because you would grow new hair. Your teeth would fall out. You would grow new teeth. You know, your skin would shed. Um, they had all of these really intricate um, notes on what would happen. 
Um, and so that was like one of the things that really drew me to them was that they seemed to really understand the aging process, like from the inside out, and they were able to defy it using various methods, not just herbs, you know, using different kinds of um, metals, like gold is a really important um, metal into the medicine, and it was highly valued for its anti-aging properties. And they had- um, The monatomic gold stuff or just regular gold? Uh, you know what? That's a really good question. It's not regular gold. It's prepared in a very specific way. Yeah. And this is these are some of the things that we're looking at because it's not like, hey, here you go, gold. It would be gold that has been um, cured using different herbs and going through different cycles. And in addition to that, they used sound and they used sound mm-hmm. in various forms. But one of the most potent forms was in the form of different mantras. And so mantras and sound for them was part of their overall repertoire for being able to reverse aging, which was from their view, like pathological, it wasn't something that had to happen. And so one of the challenges of, you know, trying to follow Siddhas is they don't live normal lives. You know, there's one Siddha, for example, where he's he spent like a few hundred years in South India, we have really good records, but then we have really good records of him being in China hundreds of years later. And so when you're looking at, you know, their, their biographies, they don't meet the normal birth death cycles that yeah. we're we're accustomed you know to and the other thing that i thought was just really amazing about them was again for them the physical and what we would call the mystical or spiritual was all just science it was just all scientific and so they had the capacity for doing things like levitation and so forth um just through a process of purifying like the body and mind. It was, it was just, it was so systematic. And so all of the things that we would consider as, oh, that's only appropriate, you know, for a monk. These were actual scientists who said, wait a minute, gravity does not necessarily have to have that effect on the human body all the time. Let's see how we could bend the effect of this. I mean, come on, how could we not want to know, you know, what they had discovered when they were touching upon some of the basic assumptions that we have made to be true about life and saying, no, not always. Under certain circumstances, you can bend these realities. Now, a lot of people listening are saying, oh my God, this doctor just said levitation. Uh And so (laughs) that's okay, because I'm going to tell you guys, if you don't know about this, the yogic siddhis, not the siddha, which we're talking about, are a set of more than 40 well-documented capabilities that are rare but possible in humans. Exactly. And yes, levitation is one of them. Yes. And it turns out, and this is uh, another guy who's been on the podcast. He wrote a book called um, Super Supernormal, Superhuman. Uh, Joe Dispenza has actually done a great job of writing down these things and saying, it's funny. People can't do it, except, oh, people who meditate ha- can do all of these things at yes. least a little bit. And people yes. who really meditate like badasses, um, they can do more of these things. So it's documented, but exceptionally rare. And the people who can do it, and by the way, I know people who can do this. And I know people who know people who can do this. It is exceptionally rare. And they don't do it as a talent show. They don't do it for a show. Exactly. It's, it's done as part of their spiritual practice. And this, the siddhas were people who had achieved all of those siddhis. But Correct. they were known for their like their medical lineage. So they weren't just sitting around meditating. They were doing things after having achieved a state. They were doing things with it, you know, um, to advance uh, humanity. And what I love, you know, about this lineage is it wasn't just about like just what you said. You you have you know monks. You have Tibetan monks. I mean, they've actually even documented Tibetan monks who are have the capacity to meditate after a certain amount. I'm sorry, after levitate after a certain amount of meditation. But what was fascinating about the Siddhas is they didn't go the long way. They were like, hold on, nope. There's a way that if you kind of do a combination of things from a biological standpoint with different herbs. And like I said, using different sounds and during using, you know, different metals in certain ways, you can actually fast forward this process. So instead of it being like 50 years of meditation, and then you're able to like, you know, come up for a little bit, they're like, there's a way to actually advance humanity so that they're able to do these things. And what, what they really were showing is that there are things that we think are superhuman only because very few humans are doing it. But if humans are doing yeah. it, it's not superhuman, it's human. And we are actually functioning at a subhuman 
level. Even I, the best of us, the, even the most accomplished of us, we're, we're functioning at a subhuman level because that is part of being human. If one person can do it, it means that is part of the capacity of being a human being. It's part of the capacity, but I'm not sure that I would go, you know, all of us are subhuman because we're supposed to specialize, right? You, you need people who are really good at one thing and don't do something else. It's called teamwork, right? It's called forming a, a tribe, right? If everyone in the tribe was a warrior, no one would ever pick berries and then we'd well, all starve, right? But what if these were actually all things that we are capable of doing? And then even in our specialization, like even if you yeah. decide to become a musician, you're a musician with a fully functional brain, you know, and, and what if things like, you know, being able to travel from point A to point B without, you know, the vehicles that we require, because again, that's just our adaptation. But what mm -hmm. if all of these things are actually just part of human ability? And that's what that, I mean. Those I are mean, like, yogic cities. Nassim yeah. <laughs> Harim was on the show talking about how he thinks that's possible. Uh, I haven't managed to do it yet. Have you? I've been able to do what you would call like the I wouldn't call it levitation fully, but the being able to go up and being able to come down. And it's very, very clear that your body is not necessarily always under the influence of gravity. Being able to go up and go down, but not levitating. Tell me more. I'm, what is that? <laughs> so you can call it as the early stages of that. Like I look at levitation as something far more advanced than, you know, what I've been able to accomplish so far. And, and it's interesting because, you know, and, and this was really fascinating to me because when I was talking to this, to one of the Siddha masters in India, he thought this was so ordinary. He was like, why is this even interesting to people? He goes, it's just a repetition of the mantra that allows your body to do that. Like, it's not a big deal. That, and that's the way that they use sound. You understand? That if you repeat yep. a sound often enough, your body will eventually respond to that. And he's 100% correct. He goes, it does not necessarily reflect some elevated state of consciousness. It really, what it reflects is your body's ability to respond to a vibration. And so he was very unimpressed with that whole thing. And he couldn't understand why people, you know, in the West were so fascinated by it. I was just, it's hard to have a conversation with these people because they have access to an entire realm that, you know, seems so mystical to us and it's so ordinary to them. And they're like, no, no, no. But if you really are interested, because everybody's always looking at how to prolong time, um, but they never, or know how to extend time. They never um, look at how to be able to actually elongate a minute. And I was just like, I can't even have this conversation. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even understand what that means. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to a hundred days at neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. On the trip where I, I discovered Bulletproof Coffee, in other words, I had Tibetan yak butter tea, and I'm like, wait, this did something to my brain. Now I understand the quantum physics of why it does something different, because I funded <laughs> research at UW that helped to explain that. And um, at the time, though, I'm walking around Kathmandu, and I have always had this ability to just meet interesting people. I don't know mm. why. I'm not particularly extroverted. I actually had Asperger's syndrome, but they just come up and start talking to me. Um, by the way, it also applies for people who are trying to get the multi-level marketing scams. They also come up and talk to me. So it's not really a gift. <laughs> so it's not exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I end up having dinner with it, this. You, you just meet travelers when you're traveling by yourself. And this this lady, she says, oh, I, I never come to Kathmandu. Uh, I'm a Berkeley philosophy professor, um, but I live in a cave. And I said, how does this work? And And she said, well, I'm just in town to get my dental work done. But I spend all day, every day meditating in a cave because in my studies of philosophy, I realized that you can become fully enlightened in one lifetime and I have the recipe. So I'm doing it. 
And literally her friends would send her a new computer every year because hers would rust or something. Yes. And she just sat in a cave and meditated all the time. And then Dan Brown's been on the show from Harvard who's translated, you know, 13th century cave yogi, how to meditate in a cave texts from the Sanskrit. And like, I've got his books, I'm reading those and they're, they're recipe books, literally. First step yes. is this, second step is this. And so you remind me of, of later, they were saying, look, there's all these things that we didn't know about, so I got to go do it. I'm still intrigued at the three-month anti-aging thing. I, I, well, I think and we the Siddhas just that. did it all faster. They just did it all faster. I mean, that's what I have found. It's not that any of these pathways are not legitimate. Um, and, you know, I, I started meditating when I was nine years old. So it's not like when I got to the point of levitation, it's not like I was a newbie. I mean, it was after like, you know, 30 years of, of doing this just because I started very early. But, and I, so I'd, I've met so many interesting people because of that and yet still was very, very drawn, you know, to biology and medicine and the science, because for me, it's not interesting if I can't apply it to human life. Like it's not interesting if I'm alone somewhere experiencing it and yet nobody else in the world gets the benefit from it. And so that's why I was so drawn to medicine. It was a way of being able to, you know, reach out. I did not think I'd be doing this, but it was just a way for me to reach out to people to teach them you know, ways of being able to make life easier and better. And that's why I was really surprised because I had gone down all of these different roads with like Tibetan healers, Buddhist healers, you know, Ayurvedic healers. And when I got to the Siddha stuff, it just, I did not consider myself someone who was easily blown away at that point, but their knowledge is just so advanced and it's so prescriptive. And it's just like you said, you know, it's like, First you do this, then you do this, then you do that. And the main qualification, though, really is to be in a place of integrity, authenticity, and purity of the mind and the body. And that's the, that's, that's the part that takes time. Once you're in that place... You have to cancel Instagram to do this, is what you're saying? You know what? I don't think so. I mean, that's here's the thing. Here's what I'm seeing them because I really approached like the first of the master that I met. I was just I was in such awe, first of all, like, you know, this is like an official person who's like part of this ancient lineage, like well-known ancient lineage. It goes beyond 8000 years. He lived in a forest like this guy is legitimate. Right. And I was so just I mean, I was just like almost shaking the first time that I met him because this is really rare. They don't usually give you an yeah. audience. And so this it, whole it's, thing, it's a gift when that happens. It's a complete gift. I mean, it was just like something had to align on such a deep level. And for him to invite like my husband and I in such um, a humble and intimate setting. And I was really just expecting somebody like that. I was not going to have anything in common with him. Like I was, you know, like. I, everything I say is going to be stupid, right? And he was just so down to earth. He was so relatable. And I think he's like, and here's my email. I was like, you have email, you know? <laughs> and he's like, how else would I communicate with you? You know? And I was like, I don't know, like on the inner plate, like you know, I was like, <laughs> like through visions, and like we communicate via email and you know via WhatsApp, and you know. It, it's still this kind of interesting uh, phenomenon because when whenever I would come in India, it's 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 a tradition like if you're coming to a teacher, which I would consider him as one of my teachers, absolutely, or I should say I'm hoping <laughs> to consider him as one of my teachers, and I'd always bring him this giant bowl of fruit, right? Because I wanted to bring him something, and it was like on the third visit, he just kind of let out this huge sigh, and it was like you know, you you don't need to bring me this anymore, and I was like, well, I have to bring you something. He goes. But you see, I don't eat. And so when you bring me this, I have to go around and I have to find people to distribute it to. And like, I don't actually spend a lot of time with people. So then I have to go outside to find people. And I'm just looking at and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? no, here's okay. a bowl of air. Just enjoy that. <laughs> yes. And so there's it's this interesting combination of somebody who's mastered his body to the point and this has also been well documented, you know, in India of people who no longer require food um, to be able to generate energy. He doesn't need that form of energy. And when you look at it, there's lots of different ways to actually generate energy, but we haven't tapped into that in the human body. But here's somebody who has achieved that level and yet still has an email, still is available, you know, via WhatsApp. And so I don't, 
I think we have turned it into something into our in our heads that it doesn't have to be. And I think this is why we think it's so rare and only a few people can have it is we've excluded ourselves because we're normal modern day people. We've excluded ourselves from things that we think are just mystical and too out there. And what I'm seeing like with the Siddha tradition is like, no, I think actually many of us are ready for this. I think many of us have done a lot of work on a psychological level, on a physical level, and are looking for that next giant step. And they are it. They are the technology. Like what would take 40, 50 years with their technologies, it's just, it's so short. And that's what I've been stunned by over and over. There's this one, um, so the herb where the, the experience you have over the course of a few hours, like it would normally take you six months of deep meditation with an enlightened master to come to see life and to come to those same realizations. And everything is just What's that faster. Um, so it's a specific so the herb called mupu. And what I that? was really sh- surprised, it's M-U-P-P-U. What I was really surprised is that there's many nutraceutical companies that are spending money trying to figure out how to make this. And you, like, it's not a recipe like that, you know, <laughs> that you can't just get the raw ingredients. You have to know how now to prepare them. And again, sound was used for the preparation of many of these herbs. It, it's interesting. Uh, I just had uh, Ian uh, Mitchell on uh, recently who makes a supplement where he's actually quantum aligning the particles in some ozonides. And he's looking to replace ozone therapy with a pill. And I'm like, seriously, you're quantum aligning? And he says, oh, no, yeah, I've charged plasma fields and I had to create new technology to validate that I did that. And he's, yeah. he's I know him personally well. He's actually that kind of a scientist to do that. So yes, you you can do really cool stuff with sound, with fields, and traditionally, you know this because of your Indian background, you chant when you make ghee. Yes. Right? When you make why anything. Why do you do that? Because when it you makes make the anything. ghee better. I don't know why. Yeah. And also when you do any herbs or, you know, I have such a, I'm married to such a beautiful human being. Like he chanted every time he cooked, you know, and I, I married a white guy, <laughs> you know, my <laughs> white guy. <laughs> I was going to ask if your husband thought you were nuts or whether he was in alignment with you on this. No, my husband's way more nuts. He is the one that has really led me down this. I still come at it more from a scientific standpoint, but no, he's absolutely the yogi. I'm the scientist. I'm studying him, but he's absolutely the yogi. He's the one who lived in like Buddhist monasteries for long periods and then Mm. lived in like, you know, Hindu monasteries for long periods. And like, he's the one who's been the citizen of the world, like who's actually lived in these centers. I'm mainly just studying him. (laughs) I'm just studying And he's the one, like, I study sound and I write about it, but he is the one who uses sound in seemingly miraculous ways. And he's able to do things, you know, like that, even when he's doing them, like, we have patients in common or he's doing it. I'm like, it's still, I know you do this and I know, like, you're mine. Like, I know you don't belong to 8,000 years ago, but it's still an absolute miracle to me that you do what you do. So no, he's the one that I have to like kind of from time to go, go time out, hold on. I need to know why you're able to do this. Like I need to wow, study this. That's cool. So you have an in-house laboratory specimen. I that's do. Cool. I do. And it's, it's a very fortunate, it's a very fortuitous coupling of two people because um, I bring the science along, but he really is the one that opens the doors to these, um, you know, to these caves of knowledge that I would have not known. Uh, you know, exist. But yeah, he used to chant every meal he cooked, he would chant. And this is kind of fun. This is my level of science experiment. But um, we always had this one plant that after um, every time he would, you know, um, do a puja, which is a spiritual practice where you're chanting the water from that, he would always put in this um, one plant. And that plant was five times larger than like every other plant of the same species at our house. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I, I know intent matters. You know, I, I live in an organic farm. We raise animals. We raise a lot of vegetables. And you put some energy into them. You just do. And I do. Anytime I pick them, I'm always like talking to them. But I don't actually sing because I'm taking voice lessons. But that doesn't mean I can sing yet. Uh, <laughs> Roger loves a, a miracle worker. Thanks, Roger. He was just on the show. Um, but I'm still working on, you know, being willing to do that. 
but uh, there's there's definitely communication or some kind of thing going on there. And I know that when you put love in food, it makes the food taste better. And by the Absolutely. way, guys, when you put love in coffee beans, it makes them taste better too. Well, and now, now, now here's the thing though. So we're, we're starting to understand all of that. Right. And I absolutely see that in my life. Now, what if we had amplifiers for capturing that energy and focusing it? This is what I'm trying to say. This is what the Siddhas knew. And you're talking about just sound. They have so many other tools and they had yantras. So yantras are actually the three dimensional version of those sound vibrations And you can actually charge yantras to where they act like a machine, where they start radiating now that resonant frequency in an environment. And so one of the experiments we did in India is using a charged yantra. And this is probably going to be the next thing I'm going to write about. We'll see how this book goes first. I have to figure out, like, how, how far do I go before I'm like now, you know, a century too early you know, and 8,000 years too late. Like, you know, I'm, I've got to hit my sweet spot. You know, we, we should talk about that. In, in the world of biohacking, um, I learned as an engineer when I was young, acupuncture is stupid. Uh, chiropractors are dumb. Uh, you know, any of this, this stuff, meditation, whatever, like only a loser would do that because it's their power to deceive themselves from knowing the true scientific way. Right. <laughs> and when I weighed 300 pounds, my brain didn't work. I'm like, you know, I'm going to try this weird stuff. And it all worked. Well, all not works. all of it. Some of it worked. Right. And maybe some of it I just didn't do it right. I don't know. But eventually I said, how do I reintroduce this to the best of my ability? And when I created this field of biohacking, like, okay, let's learn how to eat again. And funny, there's Ayurvedic principles right in there. Like, why is butter and ghee central? I don't know who would have imagined. Right. And, and you, you frame it in the way that it's digestible, but I created a path of, okay, I'm going to talk about you know, peptides now. I'll talk about meditation, talk about smart drugs, but you space it out so you don't seem like a space case. Because if I had come in at the very beginning and talked about some of the, the more ancient stuff I've talked right. about, like Taoism, uh, people would have just been like, Dave's a, you know, a, a bag of you know, walnuts. I have no idea why I said that, but anyway. Just walnuts like, are just healthy and good for the yeah, brain. But if so I, I really if I was, didn't get I know, that I, analogy. That's a, a better analogy. I, I was, I was one, one fruit loop short of a full bowl. There, there. you go. There we All go. Right. So in, I have found most people have difficult times accepting sacred geometry as something that may work. And I've interviewed a couple guests about it before, but I feel like it's 20% of the way towards reaching um, public consciousness where this kind of matters and things like feng shui are further along, but you might, you might be the person who brings that and says, who brings this, well, here, here's, what's really fascinating to me. Like, first of all, many of these topics are relatively new to me. Like I'm learning them because I'm in India and because of the space I'm in. And even though I have some familiarity because I am Indian, I didn't know that they were really a thing. Like I didn't know that there was a scientific, train of thought behind them. And so like when we think about, you know, yantras and yeah, they fit into that category of sacred geometry. But then when you begin to look at like the way that a flower is made, like you start to realize sacred geometry is actually part of nature. And there's a science behind even why nature is made a certain way. It's made to collect energy, you know, a certain way. And that's so much of what these um, tools for sacred geometry, because it's not just like, oh, it's sacred. Let's look at them. The Siddhas actually used these tools and they turned them into literally machines, like little machines that emit, um, and I don't know if they're just electromagnetic waves or if that's all that we can actually measure, but they change biology. And this is what I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm like giving this away, but I feel like there's eventually going to be um, a Nobel Prize in medicine or whatever field when somebody is able to really show that sound shifts electromagnetic fields in the body, which then shift biology, either in the form of peptides, like whichever way you want to measure it. But we already know this. Cell membranes are all piezoelectric. We know this, but we're not showing how that actually modulates disease. And like when we start to actually make this as a form of medical and biological intervention, that is when we are going to start to look at things like yantra and then go wait a minute hold on why does this particular shape because yantras were actually always associated with a particular mantra and so you just start to look at the science of this that there is a audible vibration that literally knows how to go down a particular type of circuitry and if it's flowing in a metal in a particular type of geometry 
that would result in a release of a particular type of energy. This is the next wave of medicine. I don't know if I'll be alive for it. Well, I may if I live for 300, 400 years. Just do your three-month thing. Yeah, I'm just going to do my three-month thing. Um, but, you know, this is what we're going to do in the future. We're not going to treat, like, tumors or diabetes and all of this in the ways that we're treating it now. We're going to be way smarter because we're going to understand vibrational medicine and then what feels mystical today is going to be just so commonplace. And we're going to look at the way that we looked at our ancestors from 300 years ago and go, why, you know, like, why didn't they, like, why didn't they know this? Like, why, how did they not piece this together? This is so obvious. I mean, my gosh, I can't believe they were cutting people open with scalpels when you can penetrate the skin using vibration. So what is the impact? You have all this ancient knowledge and all that stuff. And now you've got research that says sound goes down inside the cells. But what's the so what of this? Like, what should we be doing right now to use that in ourselves? Well, I mean, so first of all, the so what of it is, it's actually validation. Not that I think we needed it, but that we're built for sound. Um, why would why would organisms that have ears not be built for sound? <laughs> right. Um, and you know, keep in mind when people say, "Okay, but that's audible sound." I said, "Right, but audible sound is just a certain range of frequencies." And so, are you saying that because a dog can hear certain frequencies and we don't, that that's not sound? So even the way that we define these things is kind of funny. It's very egocentric because we say this is sound when a human ear can hear it. This is not sound when a dog or any other animal can hear it. So the reality is we're vibratory beings. That's really what it's saying is that some of those vibrations we pick up as sound because that's a sensory organ that can translate it. Others we pick up as light through our eyes because that's a sensory organ. But we're essentially vibratory beings. And because we're vibratory beings, our, our biology responds to vibration. And so the way I would look at it is you are practicing sound medicine whether you want to or not. You're just doing it you know, um, in a way where it's accidental and it's not deliberate. So you practice it every time somebody argues with you. You practice it every single time somebody honks a horn or there's a leaf blower, meaning your bio biology is immediately changing to that immersion of that experience of sound. So if you're doing it accidentally, why not do it on purpose and, and do it because you want to be smarter, because you want to have more clarity, because yeah. you want to be a better spouse, because you want to be a better parent, because you want to bring your blood pressure down. Like, why not do this on purpose every single day rather than allowing it to happen to you? And I think as people become more aware and conscious of the impact sound has, we would look at sound pollution, which is a term we already know. We would look at yeah. sound pollution really differently. And we would look at it as as detrimental to our health as we look at other forms of pollution, because we'll recognize that it also alters our biology. I've always shared in my books and all that the original sound healing uh, or sound technology, there was Tibetan um, bowls because you play a different sound in each ear. It sets up a standing wave in the brain and you can change the brain state that way. Except apparently chanting, which is kind of obvious, is really the original sound <laughs> technology. I just never thought of it. So thank you. Yes, our vocal um, cords. <laughs> talk to me about sound entrainment, though, and how that works. And I brought up the Tibetan bell example. There may be others you know of, but how does sound entrainment work? So entrainment is something that we see in natural um, systems. It's, it's, we see them in ecological systems. Entrainment, when you see um, birds flying in formation, that's a form of entrainment. Um, it was kind of first uh, studied when um, uh, pendulums that were in the same room would eventually entrain and start swinging together, even though their frequency initially was different. And it's just a way of nature and biology saving energy. And so Natural systems can become entrained by different things. Sound is one of the things that helps to entrain the brain in particular, and especially rhythmic sounds. Um, that has a very specific effect on the brain. And if you, you know, if you've ever studied like um, brain physiology, your your brain is a very rhythmic um, organ. I mean, it, it generates a lot of different frequencies depending which state it's in. And so instead of just waiting for your brain to generate those states and then um, the resulting, you know, electromagnetic magnetic waves, you can actually generate those states using external stimuli like sound. 
So, you know, you talked about like the Tibetan um, singing bowls, or if you've ever heard like Buddhist monks chanting, or um, like for me, I, you know, in India, I'm exposed all the time to the different, you know, ancient um, Sanskrit and Siddha uh, Tamil um, mantras. They're, they're enunciated in a very particular way. They're chanted in an extremely rhythmic way. And some of the oldest mantra some of the oldest sounds in south india when you analyze them the only other place in nature that creates those kinds of sounds are actually bird songs and so there's something about this rhythmic way of using chanting um you know in different mantras that has a very specific effect on the brain and the the brain is actually when we look at the effect of it, it, you can tell that it's actually made to respond to sound in this way. And these are the parts where I, I look at like, you know, the things that we're trying to do and we're putting so much effort into it. Like if you understand just your basic biology, like if you understand the brain's biology and understand that it responds to sound in a very predictable way, we would not have to do those 30, 40 years of meditation in a cave. You know, we can introduce the technology that would fast forward that. And then, Maybe, you know, if we saw a society that did that in 30 years or now that we're both going to, you know, do this anti-aging synthesis, in 150 years when we have this conversation again, I'm going to say, I told you, I told you we were subhuman because all of a sudden we will be unlocking aspects of our brain that we didn't even know we had access to. I can give you a specific mantra that is um, really, really helpful for aligning all of the centers in the body. When you include what is it? Can you share with everybody? Like absolutely. Like yes. So this is a specific mantra. It's a very, very ancient mantra. It's um, I believe it's one of the Siddha mantras, um, and it's for every major energy center in the body, um, which is known as a chakra energy system. You know, in the East, Um, and I'll just sing it for you. Hari Om Nam Lam Mam Vam Simram Vam Yam Yam Ham Shiva Om Swaha And I, I will I'll email you um the information about it because each one of those sounds actually corresponds to a different energy center. And so when you do that with the focus on that energy center, you actually enliven that particular area. And as you do it on a more regular basis, um, your energy state of your body actually shifts. Okay. I'm going to do the magic of editing here. So you're listening to the show right now. We're going to play that loop back for you. And this time I want you to do what I did. Uh, what I did there is I just tuned in. How are the different parts of my body feeling right now? And there were definite shifts uh, that I was feeling at different stages of that. So listen to this uh, from a very, uh, just just like not even the sound as much as just like, what is my body doing right now? Like, like look at your gut, look at your heart, look at your throat, look at your forehead, and just see if if something is there, right? So we're going to play it again for you right now. Hariyom. Nam lam mam vam simram vam yam yam ham shiva om swaha. When I had a, a really advanced yoga practice, again, before I had kids, uh, they tend to suck your yoga and meditation right out of you. <laughs> I, um, uh, uh, I, I did a lot of chanting in some of the classes, right? And it took me a very long time to remember any of these mantras, mm. right? Because like, they're just non-words. I don't have a picture yes, in my head to sounds. assemble them. They're just sounds, right. H- how do you remember a mantra like that? You repeat it. It's how you remember anything. Um, so when I was first given this mantra, and when I was given this mantra, it was really in the setting of, this is the mantra that resets the whole body. This is the mantra that can reset DNA. I mean, this is a very, very powerful mantra. And I was given it with, you know, with the request of like, go and share this with people. Like this is a very, very strong and healing mantra. And yet because it's balanced, because you're doing all of the energy levels, it's not going to leave you kind of like topsy-turvy, which, um, you know, if, if you overdo only one particular energy center, it can actually leave you very ungrounded. Um, but when I first had it, I wrote it down. 
and I would just read it and until I had the sounds memorized. And then I would chant it out loud until it became so natural. And now, and then once, once I had it memorized, then I would start to associate it with the different energy centers, locations in my body. And now, like, as soon as I do it, I I can feel those energy centers just light up like a Christmas tree. I mean, it's so automatic now. It's just like, it's like anything else. When you're entrained to do it, your body just goes, any athlete, right? Like as soon as they start lacing up their shoelace, their blood pressure changes, their heart rate changes. You know, it's the same thing for chanting. Once your body knows what's going to happen with the chanting, it starts doing it the minute you utter it. But that's, there's a process to that. You write in sound healing, um, you talk about, Nada yoga, which is mm. a Vedic practice just about sound, but there's four levels of it. And I think listeners might appreciate it if you walked through what are those four levels and why should we care? So let's just first of all back up um, about what Nada yoga is, because most people, when they hear yoga, they think of yoga as in like yoga positions, right? Mm, yeah, um, practice, and right? yoga actually means union. And so asanas, which is actually the yoga that most people do, that's just one aspect of the science of yoga or the philosophy of yoga that helps you to achieve union. And so when we say not a yoga, it's the type of yoga where you are united again with yourself, you know, you pierce those five sheaths to become reunited to who you really are through the use of sound. And so my husband is actually a not a yogi, and this isn't a position you apply for this is something that he was, uh, you know, gifted through his um, practice, which means somebody who has now, you know, united with sound in such a way that it can be used as a tool to, um, you know, penetrate both tissues, penetrate thoughts, you know, penetrate anything that is vibratory in nature. Um, so when we talk about Nada Yoga, we're talking about the different, you know, levels of sound. And oftentimes we don't think about, you know, sound is actually having um, uh, different like uh, dimensions to it. And so there's the audible sound, like we're talking, right? That is a form of sound. And then there's the sound that is a whisper and a whispered sound does have a different effect than the audible sound. And then there's the inaudible sound that you're still able to hear inside of your mind, right? That's what you do when you're reciting a mantra. And then there is the transcendental sound, okay? And so the transcendental sound is sound that is perceived beyond our typical organs that um, are able to capture uh, sound. And this is, you know, this is essentially just um, a doorway into different levels of experience that are now beyond the senses. And I know this is starting to sound very kind of like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but we're not just our sense organs as we see them. We have inner senses, just like people can have visions with their eyes closed. You can experience sound. In some traditions, it's considered like celestial sounds. Sometimes people will say, I feel like I heard, you know, um, singing that, like it doesn't, it didn't sound like singing that came from a human voice, that there are sounds from other dimensions. And so when you open up, you're actually able to start to perceive that sound. And in some traditions, they would say that is where the sound of God comes from. Because remember, many traditions talk about the word or sound being the source of creation. Was that, was that, was that intelligible? <laughs> I, I think I get it. And, you know, I have read some of these things and, and I, uh, people who've listened for a long time have kind of figured out that I've traveled some weird paths. Um, almost every creation myth has something along the lines of at the beginning, there was the sound of the Lord, the sound, there was Om, there was Amen. And depending on which slight translation you have from that, pretty much that's universal, even if a lot of the ancient shamanic knowledge that evolved to become the bone religion and then to become Buddhism and then was a part of Hinduism or maybe not even, and then it just branched out. But this stuff rolled across the Siberian plains. And this is just right. kind of the very ancient evolution of knowledge, but they all keep saying that. So I'm going to just believe that there's probably a reason for that rather than just them being really dumb, which right. is the alternative. Because right? we'd have to be universally dumb in different places at different times and have the same kind of dumbness. Like yeah, we'd have to have the unlikely. exact same way. 
<laughs> and, and so when we talk about that kind of sound, that would be considered the transcendental sound, the sound okay. that is beyond just the organs of perception, beyond just your ears and beyond even your mind, because your mind is an organ of perception, because when you are talking inside of your head, who's listening? I mean, it's not from your ears. So the, the mind is also part of your organ of perception. Everything you experience, you're not actually experiencing. Your mind is experiencing it. And that's the connection between the mind and the sense organs. But there is a level of experience that is beyond the mind, and that is transcendental sound. And that is where many of these ancient mantras, the bija mantras, where you said, you know, how do you remember this? Because they're just sounds. That is where these ancient bija mantras come from. And that is why they're the fastest and easiest route to connect to that Anandamaya Kosha or that bliss sheath, because that is where they are said to originate from. I get it. But if you got that, you're pretty much like, that's all well, you need to know. You're done. <laughs> I mean, you, you can understand there's that, different levels. Easy. And and if you want to take this in something that maybe someone's listening going, okay, I did not get that. You ever been to a concert, right? And, and it, feels different like, like what's going on there right like, like a song, someone plays a song whatever it is and, and and you have a visceral experience that's more than the way you hear it on the radio like what's going on there and you can say oh it's because there was a crowd or whatever but no there's something happening that is transcendent you can have a spiritual experience from music that's why we Absolutely. play music right so i i don't think it's that hard to grasp i like it that there's structure and that someone studied this for oh, a few thousand years and came up with some knowledge like great. I'd rather study their cheat sheet than have to discover it myself. <laughs> no, I agree with you. That's okay. that's the intention of these whole books. They're really the cheat sheets of, you know, the, the lineage where some of these people, like they would meditate on a concept for an entire year before they would write like even a sentence, you know, in these ancient, um, ancient books. And so we're not, we're not going to do it that way. And so, and, and it's not just to be interesting, like at, you know, at a dinner party, the whole point is you can take these technologies, you can take sound, you can take, you know, even just the chakra uh, mantra that I gave today. And you could just, you could do that for 20 minutes a day and you will notice things in your life shift and that things feel better. It's true. I, I mean, anytime you do one of those things for a little while, you get nonlinear, like, wait, hold on. Why is everything easier? And a right. lot of my spiritual practice, a lot of my meditation, the neurofeedback and all that, it's about how do you make things easier, right? And things, what things? whatever I'm working on, clearly. And it doesn't matter if it's personal development or parenting or businesses, whatever. I want it to be easier and that's okay. Now, we're up against the end of the show, but I really want to know if someone came to you and said, okay, you've accumulated a bunch of knowledge around sound healing, <laughs> sound medicine, and give me two things that would be most impactful that I could start doing right now to put this to work in my life. What would they be? You only get two. Oh, that's actually, that's very, very easy. Um, the two things would be have a mantra practice every single day. You can use the bija mantras that I gave you today for the chakras. And the other one is don't take sound for granted, meaning um, don't yell at somebody without equating it to like hitting them with a bat. Um, when you are in a situation where you are receiving um, destructive sound, go and negate that effect in your body. Like do not take sound for granted. And when you're exposed to negative sound, do something to heal that immediately because it is having a biological effect. But what heals negative sound? Uh, positive sound. So th there's so many things, you know, they say even in relationships that if you hear one thing negative, you have to say five things that are positive to negate that negative. So if somebody just said something really negative to you, immediately say five things positive. Or if you say one thing negative about yourself, immediately say something, five things positive. This is actually something that um, my husband and I do as a, as a practice because we understand the power of sound. Because, you know, we're not perfect, but we negate as quickly as possible the effects of negative sound because it's just like, you know, dropping um, something that is um, acidic and is going to burn your skin. You would immediately alleviate that by putting aloe vera or coconut oil, something that would heal it. And so do not take sound for granted. And so always make sure that if you're exposed to negative sound, that you're doing something immediately or on a regular basis to heal the impact of negative sound. How long do you have to practice a mantra for it to work? There's something kind of magical about 20 minutes that carries that through pretty much your whole day. Okay. Um, and that, that's been my practice is, you know, 
Um, because I do like two different mantras. I do the chakra mantra every day. To me, that's like taking a bath. It's, it's like taking a bath for all of my sheaths, not just my physical sheath. That in, incorporates, um, you know, cleaning all of my sheaths. So I do that. Um, and then I have another, um, you know, mantra practice that's specifically with the yantra that I was given. And that's, you know, that's my, my daily sound practice. And each one is about 20 minutes. Dr. Clarit Chowdhury, your book is Sound Medicine. This is a fantastic interview. Thank you for going to the weird places and sharing what you're actually doing with <laughs> listeners. I think it's fascinating. I really appreciate that you are doing this and that you are taking people to some of these weird places because eventually they're not going to be weird. We want to be there first. That's the thing. That's what biohackers do. We want to be able to take advantage of them because I like to think people are as lazy as I am. Uh, which is that why would I want to do it the hard way? There's no moral superiority to suffering. Uh, so let's get this work done and let's have extra time and energy at the end of the day so we can do fun stuff. Uh, so I, I think that you've, if you, anyone listening, say it goes from three hours to 45 minutes, that's a win. <laughs> Your website is Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury. And if you guys aren't familiar with how to spell names from India, it's D R K U L R E E T. Chowdhury, C-H-A-U-D-H-A-R-Y.com. And of course, if you go to DaveAsprey.com, we'll have show notes, transcriptions, we'll have the mantra there, and we'll have links to her website as well. Thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.